All right, guys, we're gonna get going for the sake of time. So if you did not hear from me, please grab one of those sheets and write the names of three, up to three direct reports. Um, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But let me just quickly share who I am, what do I do, for those who don't know me. I am the executive pastor here at Livingstone's Church. Uh, we have about, in terms of part-time and full-time, uh, around 30 staff members at Livingstone's Church, but a lot of them are part-time. Um, and then we also have a lot of volunteer leaders, a lot, lots and lots and lots. Um, so I get to work with a lot of different people. Um, so even though I'm not, quote-unquote, in the marketplace, I do have a lot of experience working, equipping, training, leading people, setting clarity, setting guidelines, territory, all that good stuff. Um, how many of you heard this term relational leadership before? If you have, raise your hand. I know it's sort of a familiar term. I kind of want to share my journey in this process. Um, just because you know about it doesn't mean you're going to do it. In fact, so many people are inoculated with this idea of relational leadership that makes them feel like they're doing it, even though they have, they absolutely are not doing it. Does that make sense? And, and I just want to kind of share my experience. So uh, about two weeks ago, uh, the, the difference between relational leadership and non-relational leadership. So about two weeks, or I think three weeks now, I was invited to go to a executive pastor retreats with the who's who's of executive pastors in America. I'm talking about churches with 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 member churches. I mean, big churches. And I got to hang out with these executive pastors. And let me just say, like, it was an awesome experience. They were awesome people, super humble. Um, they all wire like me. It's really weird to be in a retreat with people all wire like me. Uh, we all read the same books. It's so bizarre. We all speak the same language. It's very operator type, like getting stuff done. You know, um, everyone got up early. Like, like, no one slept in. Everyone went to work. I mean, it was so bizarre. It's like a bunch of just... <laughs> We're operator types, you know, and, and, and many of them are way highly more talented and gifted than I was in many different ways. But uh, I was talking to one executive pastor, and I was just sharing about our, our growth. You know, for us, we've been growing quite a bit. Well, he, he's an executive pastor for a church about, you know, 5,000, so several times our size. And, and I was just sharing with him of all the different direct reports I have. I have a lot of different territories to lead. He just says, you know what, why, why are you meeting with all of them so often? Why don't you just like subtly like meet with them less and less often? And I was just like, well, you know what, I want to kind of, he's just like, you don't have to tell them, just kind of subtly step back from some of the, because you have too many on your plate. And again, what he shared was not in the bad heart with diminishing people. It was a good operational rule because you only have so many number of hours in a day. But what I saw in that picture was he and I had different priorities. Does that make sense? His priority was make sure you get the job done and make sure, you know, you got the necessary material to get the ministry done. But the reason I wouldn't do that is because my priority is not the ministry. My priority is my people. You see the difference? You see how subtle that is? And I'm not going to say this guy is, doesn't love Jesus, that he's not godly, that he's not, you know, all those things. He's a great guy. I, he's, he has so much wisdom. But that little subtle difference was what really shook me. It was like, wow, okay, fundamentally, we see things differently because I practice relational leadership, okay? So um, just real quickly with my history, my story, you know, my whole life, I'm a pastor's kid. I grew up, well, my, my parents pastor a small, like, 
a, like a couple hundred member uh, Chinese Baptist church in Richmond, Virginia. I grew up, and the church, when we first moved from Taiwan to America, it had like 30 people. So it was a, just a small community. Um, but my parents has always taught me that relationship is the most important thing. Okay. Uh, when you go to heaven, when, when the kingdom of God comes, when you go to heaven, whatever, you lose everything else, but all you have is your relationship. That's what I was taught. And that's good teaching. I appreciate that. Um, but what I didn't understand was, what does that mean in your everyday work life and in the marketplace? You know, in the church means you're nice to people, but what does that mean practically, right? Um, so, you know, my wife and I, we invest in people. We care about relationships. We care in people. You know, we've been... My wife and I have been married for 10 years, and for literally nine and a half of those years, we have had young people living with us um, that we can love and care for um, because we invest in a relationship. We, we lived out our worldview. Does that make sense? So we really buy into that. Um, but again, what does that look like in the workplace? What does it mean to invest in relationship, to care for people in the workplace? Okay. Um, and what I found... When I first tried to, you know, before I came on staff here at Livingstone's Church, I was working at, as a, um, Bobby and I were just talking about, Bobby actually was one of my students, uh, at the alternative school in Crown Point. And um, Bobby probably shouldn't have been there. I think he just got there to graduate early, right? Yeah. But I was the lead teacher for Crown Point, and I got to work with uh, quite a few other teachers and teachers' aides who were, they're not technically my employee, but I was their leader. Does that make sense? And, you know, I try to practice the same thing, be nice, be kind to them. Um, I, I care about them. But subtly behind all that was still so that they can be trained and achieve a role, which I'm not saying that's bad. But what I found is even in my relational style, there was still an underlining sense of manipulation. Not that my heart was manipulation, but there was, I was trying to get them to get a job done. Okay. Um, then... I left the school corporation and came to work at Livingstone's Church. And then very quickly, I was introduced to Walter and their group. I actually met uh, Rick Beatonbow, who, was the, who is the leader of the Beatonbow companies. I met in Highland at a workers' worship conference. Um, and I heard him talk about this. And I went up to Rick. I said, Rick, tell me as a pastor how I can equip our people better for the workplace. And his response was, wow, I've never had a pastor ask me this question before. To which my response was, wow. I can't believe no pastor has ever asked you that question before. Um, so I went down to Lubbock for their Key Network workshop. And again, if you haven't been and you really want to get understand this workers' worship, I highly recommend flying out there and, and experiencing one of their three-day workshops. You get to see their facilities, their retreat center, their garden. It's, it's, it's amazing. But I saw in their company something I have never seen before is they take these messages like God's my CEO, uh, like hearing from the Holy Spirit, like um, relational leadership. It's not just these ethereal sayings that sometimes, you know, we hear in the religious circle. They implement it into their basic operational protocol into what they do. I, you know, I went there and I was like a detective. You get an opportunity to meet with like their one on like one on one executive team. I'm like, I'm not exactly exactly executive, but I'm gonna seek myself in there. And I got to talk with uh Cal Zen, who is the who is the head of their Beanball Homes division. He runs their homes. And I just asked a million questions. Wait, you say you say this, how does that what does that look like in your business? What does that actually look like? 
this collaborating with God? What does this relational leadership really look like? And in this company, what I saw is, I've never seen this before in a church or a business or anything, that people take these principles and they ingrain it to their protocol. I'll give you one example. You guys remember the PPE, the Paycheck Protection Plan? You know, they were basically, the government was going to give you a, a, a loan for uh, per every employee for a certain payroll. And it becomes a grant if you make it a payroll, basically. Basically, it's free money. It's a, it's a grant if you make it payroll. Well, when the Beanbow leadership team heard about this, their banker called them and said, hey, you got to apply for this or money's going to go real soon. Rick and his leadership team, including Walter and Cal and those guys, you know, they say, you know what, before we do that, we're going to pray about it. We're going to ask the Lord for a direction. We're not going to answer the banker first. We're going to pray about that. We're going to meet on Monday and we're going to decide this. On Monday, they came together and they one by one went through and say, what did the Lord say to you? Well, they say the Lord said to you, every single one of them says, we're not going to take this long. Because other entities need this more than we do. God's going to provide for us using our normal means. And they turn down the loan. That's what I mean by taking these spiritual things and make it into their practical, everyday protocol. And that's how they make decisions. Personnel decisions, loan, marketing decisions, hiring, firing decisions, collaborating with God. This is not just something fun we do on the stage. This is something that's ingrained to their business. Including relational leadership. This is what I learned when I was down there about relational leadership that blew my mind. They said every leader's number one priority is not get the stuff done. It's not the, it's not, uh, the checklist. Is the people they lead. That's their number one priority. Now, that doesn't mean they, they don't have to do other stuff. But their number one priority is the people they lead. Demonstrated by their shoulder to shoulder and their one-on-ones, which I'll talk about in a second. I've never heard that before. Me as a pastor, which you think, you know, will be like, should be interested in people, right? You want your pastor to kind of be interested and care about people, right? I have not even made the people I work with my number one priority. And I was like, I felt so challenged and so convicted by that. I'm like, what? It makes no sense. This beautiful home building company with an event center and with a title company, with a supplying company and with a cafe and a farm. You guys are operating on this principle? So I was super convicted, challenged. I was almost like, almost competitive. Like, wait a second, I should be doing this, right? You know, so I came back from that conference and I was like, okay, I got to dig more into this. Okay, I got to look into scriptures. Okay, what does the Bible really talks about, talk about relational leadership? Okay, so um, I look into the life of Jesus and I look at what he did. And I felt the Lord starts to really show me the gospel in, the, in a different perspective. So um, th- the question I pose to you guys is, if you, you guys know where I'm leading you towards. If I say, hey, Ashley, I want you to change the world. Change the world for God's kingdom. I want you to make the, most, the greatest impact. But here's the deal, okay? You're going to have all authority, you can walk on water, you can raise the dead, heal the sick, you can multiply food. You can, you can just, you have legions of angels. If you want to just destroy anybody, you can, you can if you want. You have all authority. But here's the trick. You only got three years. You only got three years. Just think about that. What would you do? Now, if you go on the streets and ask people, and you don't make a leading question, you don't have any Jesus reference in there, some of the responses you, you, you might get are, I'll run for president. Uh, I'll start a business. I will go do a crusade. You know, I'll go do big rallies. 
or I'll start a TikTok account. Probably, probably most effective at this point. Um, I don't know. Those are the things that people might say, right? But what did Jesus actually do, right? Wasn't that basically his deal? Three years? You know, he didn't start his ministry until he was 30. Three years, all authority. What did he do? He invested in his disciples. He invested in his leadership team. In fact, Jesus didn't trust the crowd. Uh, you can see in the sheet, John, um, chapter 2, 23. While he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the sign he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. So what did Jesus do instead? He focused on his disciples to the point that when he left, if you go to Acts chapter 1, verse 15, he had only about 120 followers. Only about 120 followers when he left. When, he, when I say when he left, I don't mean when he got crucified. I mean when he's like, see you guys later. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. I'm peacing out. Because it's better for the Holy Spirit to come to you than for me to stay here, which is a whole other sermon in itself. Okay? When he left, there was only 120, about 120 followers. So a lot of people knew about him, but in terms of followers, he only had 120 people. And think about what these 120 people did in collaboration with the Holy Spirit. They literally changed the history of mankind so that now when you go and say a date, you actually have to talk about either before Jesus or after Jesus. Talk about making an impact on history. Your whole dating system is based on Jesus Christ. And he did it with 120 disciples in collaboration with the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's make that clear. This is not just a human strength. That was his leadership style. And this leadership style was so powerful that he actually commanded his disciples to do the very same thing. Therefore, go into all the world and what? Do a bunch of crusades, TikTok accounts or social media accounts. I'm not saying those are bad things, but that's not ultimate goal. His ultimate method to go make disciples of all nations and teach them to obey You know, people talk about, well, do you guys rather have discipleship or evangelism? I'm like, no, discipleship is our call. Evangelism is the beginning of discipleship. A lot of times people have those discussions. I'm like, no, our call is not to evangelize. Jesus did not say that. Our call is to discipleship, but you got to evangelize first to get to discipleship. To me, this is not either or. This is and. So, Jesus operates through this idea, this relational, this concept of relational leadership. And we see this over and over again, not only in the scriptures, but just in history. The large crowd never make any changes, never let any changes. It's the small group of people, okay, small committed group of people, for better or for worse, who impacts history. They impact the crowd. They impact everybody, okay? I'm going to have some good examples here. You talk about the Gideons. I mean, Gideon and his 30, 300 mighty men, right? Uh, or the founding fathers, a small group of men who got together and said, hey, you know what, let's, let's do this thing. Let's rally everybody. William Wilberforce, who outlawed uh, the slave trade in England, he started with a small Clapham, this is a sacred uh, group. They call it the, 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 the sacred sect because there were, there, were, there were guys who got together, men and women who got together, business people, clergy people who got together and they pray together, they seek God together, they seek holiness together. Small group of people who made societal changes. 
Looking at the scripture's history, I realized that focusing on individual, the small group, focusing on these relationships that God steward us is God's way of making the greatest impact, the greatest kingdom impact. So when the Lord really starts showing me how the scripture teaches about this relational style, I realized, man, this relational style is the gospel. The good news is that God cares about the individual. He cares about the crowd, but he cares about the individual. He wants to use his team, his disciples, to change nations. So that's one, that's where I went to first. And then I went to look at some, let's call it leadership business principle, because I love reading a lot of leadership books, leadership gurus, business books, because I believe all truth is God's truth. Does that make sense? Einstein can discover E equals MC squared, but that's not his truth. That's not Einstein's truth. That's God's truth. And all truth that's from God is sacred. Does that make sense? I don't care who discovered it. It's God's truth. So I value truth. I value principle. I, I value leadership principles. I just got a few quotes here from some people you guys might recognize. First, I have Herb Kelleher, who's the founder of Southwest Airline. Okay, anybody like flying Southwest? I just like it because I don't even know my seat number. I can just find the best seat. But this is what they said. This is what he said. Years ago, the business school used to pose it as a conundrum. They would say, what comes, who comes first? Employees, shareholders, or customers? But that's not a conundrum. Your employee comes first. If you treat your employees right, guess what? Your customers come back, and that makes your shareholders happy. Start with the employees, and the rest follows from that. Do you see relational leadership? Do you see Christ's principle in that? Start with your employees first. I know you guys heard Danny Meyer. He's a you know, restaurateur. He opens a bunch of restaurants. He's one of the owners of Shake Shack. I recently read a book uh, by him called Open Table. It talks about hospitality. Yeah, he's not, I don't think he's a Christian or a kingdom guy or anything like that. But he came up with this leadership called Enlightened Leadership. And basically his philosophy is somewhere along the lines of, I can't, because they're all about hospitality. His niche is hospitality, making people feel at home, welcoming. And he basically says, I can't expect anyone to care about my customers unless they first feel cared for. Saying principle. There's a book, one of my favorite leadership books called The Advantage by Patrick Lencioni. He says, organizational health will trump or dominate, will win over organizational smarts organizational intelligence all day long. He said the reason for that is because if you're smart, but you're not healthy, you're going to just get dumber and dumber and dumber. But if you are not that smart yet, but you are healthy, you're going to get smarter and smarter and smarter. So if I have to pick one, smart or healthy, I'll pick healthy all day long. So he's saying organizational health. Is the most important is the is the advantage in all in, in the market competitive state competitive space organization organization health is the most important thing. Well, what is organization help but trust building chemistry building relationship building equity knowing your team. I mean I'm not gonna get the whole get, go through the whole book with you. I highly recommend it. it's one of my favorite book. I read it probably three times a year, just to remind myself what we need to do to keep ourselves healthy. Communications, but building cohesion clarity. Investing in your teammates, investing in your people. Anybody heard of Jack Welch before? Jack, oh, I jumped from good to great. Anybody heard of good to great Jim Collins? It's like a legendary book on business. 
<clears throat> one of the principles he has for the great company, he says, the right person sitting in the right seat. Just having the right person is not enough. The right person needs to be sitting in the right seat. But how do you know what seat they should be sitting in unless you know your people? Goes back to relational leadership, knowing them to say, hey, you should be sitting in the right seat. Jack Wells, a legendary executive from GE, he says, before you are a leader, success is all about growing yourself. When you become a leader, success is all about growing others. And finally, I conclude with Craig Rochelle, you know, pastors, a senior pastor of Life Church, the largest church in America. He says, your potential isn't determined by what you do. Your potential is determined by the leaders you empower. Your potential is capped at what you can do. You can be the most talented, literally the most talented person in the world. And your potential is like literally this much. But I don't have to be that talented person. But if I can empower 10 talented person, I just trump that person by a lot. It's an exponential growth when you empower leaders. And you cannot empower leaders unless you practice relational leadership. So, in summary, what is relational leadership? Okay, this is kind of my summary from. I'm going to read page 106 from the Beatonbow Guy, which the Beatonbow Company have actually a leadership guide. I just thought this is a great way to summarize what is relational leadership. God loves every individual on your team, <clears throat> and because He loves them, He added them to your team and placed them under your authority. He is longing to transform them into the fullness of who He created them to be. And one primary way, not all the way, but one very important way he wants to do that is through you. Think about that for a second. It's through you. You're the vessel that God wants to use to forge your direct reports into who God's made them to be. Whether they're a Christian or not. I hope you feel the weight of that. I tell my, um, I, I work for several different business owners. And I told them, I said, hey, look, if you want your business to continue to grow, you know, you have to change your mindset about why you go to work. Now, I know you went to work because you just really like HVAC. You're really good at doing HVAC. So you have an HVAC business or you really are good at drywalling or construction or whatever craft you have. And you can do that for a while. But if you want your business to grow, I'm going to tell you right now, you are no longer in the HVAC business. You are in the people development business. You're no longer in the construction business. You're in the, you're in the people development business. I'm sorry. I, I, I don't know what to tell you. you. It's a bait and switch. You went in because you love putting on drywalls. But if you want your business to grow, you have to switch your mindset into the developmental business. People developing business. Because the limiting factor for most businesses I know is not capital, it's not cash, it's not, it's not uh, uh, climate or economy. It's leaders. It is leadership. So if you don't quickly adapt a model of leadership development, you're going to be capped in your business so quickly. And I'm seeing that left and right. And I see the struggle with it because people don't go into certain business trying to develop leaders. They just want to dig a hole or they want to build computers or whatever it is, which is fine. But if you want it to grow and grow in the kingdom way, you have to switch your mindset to develop people. I see this with pastors too. Some people, some pastors love being a pastor because they love preaching, teaching Bible studies, you know. They love caring for people, pastoral caring for people. But they have no idea how to develop people. And when the church starts to grow, 
guess what? You can't pastor over 200 people anymore. It'll kill you. And you lose your family and all that stuff. So what do you do in that moment? If you want to continue, you don't have to, but if you want to continue to grow, you better grow some leaders so they can care for others. It's a conundrum that we often face. We know how the world sees leadership, right? It's a pyramid, top down. The elite, the best, the smartest, you get the best food, the best parking space, you're at the very top, right? The pyramid, right? But that's not what relationship, relational leadership is. It turns it upside down, okay? You, you literally reverse that pyramid so that the highest leaders are at the very bottom. And your number one job, I like to call it, is you are the best, you're the greatest cheerleaders for others. You are their number one cheerleaders. You empower them. You encourage them. You keep them accountable. You know them. You listen to them. You help them fulfill their potential and their call. And they, in turn, do it for the next layer and the next layer and the next layer. You see, you see how that looks? So that the top of the pyramid, which typically will be the bottom, the widest layer is the one that's engaging the community. But they are equipped, they are loved, they are cared for, their potentials are being realized because of your leadership cascading down or up in that case to reach out and touch the world. Does that, does that picture make sense, the upside down pyramid? I, was, I just want to just be super real about this. This is not that fun sometimes. Sometimes it's super fun. But this relational leadership sometimes is very, very difficult. Because we're not used to it. We all grew up with an idea of that leadership is top-down, top-down pyramid. We get into the grind, we get busy, and we forget. And we start to focus on the task. We start focusing on the results. I'm not saying those things are not important. I'm not saying tasks and results are not important. I'm saying, simply saying there's a higher priority is the person. You see what I'm saying? I'm not saying we all just not have making any profits and we just be loosey-goosey and there's no excellence. I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying the relational style takes priority over that. I'm going to explain that a little bit more. But in this process, from my experience, there's a genuine dying to yourself that happens. Because there are days I go home from work and I feel like I did nothing. Because all the stuff I wanted to do, I don't get to really do. The stuff that I really enjoy doing, I'm no longer doing that anymore. You know, what I do most of my time now is I'm meeting one-on-one with the people I support that reports to me. I'm encouraging them. I'm hearing their stories. I'm helping them sort through issues and process through problems. And then the remainder time I have, I'm like, oh, I still got this task. I, I still got this email sent out. I still got to prep this thing. Okay. And there are days I go home. I'm like, babe, I tell my wife, babe, I feel like I did nothing today. She's like, no, you didn't do nothing. You advance the kingdom of God. It feels that way because I still want to like, get my task list done. I want the checklist. I want to feel like oh, I walk away and be like, look at this beautiful sermon I wrote. Or whatever that we produce. Because there's a degree of fulfillment there, and that's good. I'm not saying that's bad. But there's a dying to yourself when you say, hey, I want to be the leader. If you really think about it, the system of the kingdom is actually ingenuous. Because within the system of kingdom leadership, there's a built-in system to keep you humble. 
Does that make sense? It keeps you humble because if you want to be this type of leader, it can't be about you. So you can't even rise up and just be more prideful about it because the system itself keeps you from being prideful because you're there to serve other people. In fact, isn't that what Jesus said? He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord over them and their high official exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. It's in Matthew chapter 20. What does that mean? We hear this before. The kingdom of God is upside down, and, and if you're a leader, you're serving other people. Does that mean we want the CEO of your company to be doing dishes, sweeping the floor? Do you want the CEO of your company every day to come in and, and serve others, be the barista? Is that what we're saying? Now, I don't think the CEO should be always above that, Right? There will be time in which the senior pastor or the executive pastor or the senior leader needs to come and serve that way. But to me, this verse is less talking about what you do, but how you do it. Because if the CEO is, or, or whatever leader you are, is uniquely gifted and positioned to do strategizing or financial planning or, or whatever resource allocation, then they should be doing that because that's their gift. It's not what you do. It would be inefficient to grab this person and make him do, be a barista when they have no idea how to do that. Does that make sense? It's not about what you do as a leader, but it's how you do it. Are you doing it for what reasons? Are you doing it to promote yourself? Are you doing it to get to a bottom line? Are you doing it to please your boss? Maybe you're not the CEO or maybe whatever leadership you are, to please your um, direct support. Or are you doing it because you want to cultivate your employees? You want to grow them? Jesus gave us the rules of engagement for his kingdom. And that is one, one of his most important principles, I believe, which is to wash his disciples' feet, to wash other people's feet. Now, I want to be very clear. This relational style of leadership, I'm going to get into specifics in a second. It does not mean that you are a doormat. I hope you're not hearing that. You are not a doormat. Part of... Relational leadership, part of this serving and loving in the upside-down pyramid is to grow them. And that's what Walter's talking about, truth and grace. Accountability is loving people, okay? Giving them feedback is loving people. Keeping them aligned with your values is loving people. And inviting them to go find another place of vocation because they're misaligned or they refuse to align is loving people. Does that make sense? That doesn't mean you abrogate, you just let people walk over you, you let whoever works and do whatever they want and the free for all. No, no, that's not the kingdom of God. Okay? Sometimes is more, let me just say this, sometimes it's more loving to let someone go than to keep someone dysfunctionally working in a place where they're not supposed to be. Does that make sense? Do you guys really believe that? Sometimes the most loving thing you can do is to let them go. I just want to say that out loud. So, that is what I see as relational leadership. I look at the scriptures. I look at these business principles, these business books I've been reading. I realize there's a convergence of truth. And I'm like, man, and this seems to really be working out. I want to practice this. Now, here's the issue. Because... These principles seem so good and so ethereal and so nice and biblical. But why is it that so few people actually live this out? 
truly live this out. Because I work with a lot of different people, and I see the struggle of people who are truly living this out, including my life. It's because it can't just be an idea. It has to be reinforced by actions. It has to be reinforced by habits, what you do. Time to have one. Okay. So, I have a couple questions for you on the, I think, the back page, I believe. So, I'm going to lead you through some questions, but also helping you with some action steps. Okay. The first action step you want to take, if you guys buy into this relation leadership, is asking yourself, what is your top priority at work? Okay. What is your top priority? And I just think for most people, their top priority is not developing their people. It's not loving and knowing their people. It's just not. I don't care if you're a Christian or not. It's just not. That's not our culture, American culture. That's not how we see business. Some of the other potential things that might be your top priority, you got to be honest with yourself. You know, for many people, it's profit. Okay? We just got to be real with ourselves. How about this one? I had this one for a long time. Getting home early. Getting my work done so I can get home. Your top priority might be customers. You want your customer satisfaction to be your number one priority. It might be hitting the sales goal. Okay? Getting your checklist done. Making the boss happy. How about this one? Avoiding your boss. That's your top priority. <laughs> Whatever you do, stay off his radar. I'm not joking. That's a very real thing. Whatever I do, my prime motivation is I stay off everyone's radar. People just leave me alone. That's my number one priority. I'm serious. It's got to be, I mean, I thought I, I had to do an honest assessment for myself after I came back from being my home. I'm like, what is my number one true priority? I'll, I'll be real. At the church, as an executive pastor, my number one priority was to get my stuff done because I feel like I have so much stuff I have to do. I feel like every time I check off 10 things, 15 other things pop up, it becomes a never-ending battle. But that becomes my stationary bike. Getting things done. I just got to get things done. I got to get things done. And I find a degree of satisfaction when I check off my list at the end of the day, knowing that tomorrow I come back, it will regenerate. It will be twice, twice as many. But that, I get a fulfillment, a kick, an endorphin high from that. It's a weird addiction. I, I studied pharmac- pharmacology, toxicology in grad school. It's the same issue we have. Addiction is similar biochemistry as drugs or exercise or watching TV. It's the same neurological condition. I got addicted to checking lists off. It was a top priority of mine because it it released endorphins in my head. It makes me feel good. I want to feel good again, so I want to do that again. So take two minutes. Think carefully. At work right now. What is your top priority? Be honest with yourself. So, I'm going to give you two minutes. All right, I'm just going to tell you guys what I did. You know when you, you guys heard this, I don't know, what is it called, puzzle? If you have tons of rocks and you got a container, like a jar, okay? How do you make sure all the different sized rocks get into the jar, right? You put all the small rocks in, the sand in, then you put the big ones in, it won't fit, right? So what do you do? You put all the big ones in first, right? Then you pour the little rocks in, the sand, and you're able to do it. You guys know what I'm talking about. That principle became, I feel the Lord really bringing that principle to me. 
He says, look, if you really want to make a difference, this is not in your mindset. You got to create behavior to create new neurological pathway, ways of thinking, right? Repent means to think differently. You got to think differently about relational leadership. You need to do it by action steps, pathways to help you do it. So he, he, he brought that puzzle back to me and made me think, okay, what are my big rocks? Because if I do the small rocks first, I can't do all the big ones. So I'm going to put all the big rocks into my jar first. What are my big rocks? My big rocks in my case is my one-on-ones with my direct reports. And what is my container? I'll tell you what my container is. My container is the calendar of my phone. <laughs> That's my container. So what I did, I literally did this. I clear out my calendar completely. I empty up my whole jar, and I put in all my one-on-ones into my calendar first before anything else. And you look at my calendar right now, you see the recurrent ones, weekly, the one-on-ones, Monday, one-on-one Jocelyn. Tuesday, one-on-one with Matt and this, and Wednesday with Lauren, Thursday with Aaron, and Tuesday with Beth, and, tu- and Thursday. And just, just, they are there first. They're my big rocks. And yeah, the rest of the time you're free. No, then I got to fill in the rest of my time with other things. That's really, literally how I did it. By doing that for a few months, now I start to change how I think. Because based on my calendar, I will tell you what my top priorities are. To the point that, you know, I don't always preach on Sundays when I do have to preach. Um, when I do and blessed to preach, I, I have to take quite a bit of time to prepare. So what do I do when my week is full, one-on-ones, I have to prepare three weeks ahead of time. I adjust my preaching schedule, my studying schedule around my one-on-ones. Does that make sense? It's not like, hey, this week I got to preach, guys, so we're not doing one-on-one this week. Nope. I have to start three weeks earlier because I want to fill those things in. Rarely ever will I cancel my one-on-one. Rarely ever. Just ask my direct reports. That's literally how I did it. I'm not saying that's how you should do it, but that's what I did. Identify your priorities. If you want to practice relational leadership, you got to realize your number one priority as a leader is those who you support. The second question, do you really know your employee? Now, that's also a funny question because you go talk to any leader and say, do you know the employee? I don't think anyone's going to say, I don't, I've met no one who says, no, I have no idea who they are. I don't really care. I've never heard people say that. Okay. Because that word no is so subjective. So guess what? I'm going to ask you some questions. So pick one person, one of those three people you wrote down. Ask yourself these questions about them. Okay. Mentally, think about it. Do I know their spouses and kids' names? Just think about it real quick. Uh, Aaron Brown, who I'm at direct reports. Well, Mary Lauren, but that's easy, right? Because we all go to church together. You got Liam, you got Uriah, two kids. Do I know if they get the Sunday blues? You guys know what the Sunday blues are? Sunday blues is Monday's coming and Sunday night you're watching that Sunday night football. At least the guys do. And you're like, oh, I don't go to work tomorrow. Now, I'm not asking you six months ago when you talked to them, when they told you they loved their job, whether they get a Sunday blues. I'm asking you today, right now, in this moment, are they dreading to come to work on Monday or Saturday or whatever day they come to work? Now, before we go, I got to have a disclaimer. I know you guys are not necessarily the senior leader and CEO of your companies, and the danger here is you're thinking, wait, why, my boss doesn't know that about me, okay? 
Why is my, my boss is not making priority to get to know me? I want you to just reject that mind right now because this is not about judging your boss right now. This is about you as a leader, how you treat your direct reports. Does that make sense? I should have said that in the very beginning. But that's not put any judgment or any type of whatever constraints on your leader right now. This is all about your leadership, not the person who leads you. Does that make sense? Stop thinking about them. They got their own issues to deal with with God. Work on your own leadership. Cool? Okay. Because some of you are thinking, well, my boss doesn't know my, my husband or my wife's name or my kid's name. No, let's not think about that right now. Okay. Third question. Do I know what is the most frustrating part of their job? Again, not theoretical. That person, that name that you have in front of you, what is this person's most frustrating part about their job? Do you know what that is? Do I know what they love about their job? I'm not asking you what they're good at their job at. That's different. Because as their supervisor, you probably know, oh, they're, they love, they're so good at doing numbers and whatever, whatever. Just keep giving it to them. That guy's Asian. Make him do a bunch of numbers. They all love that number stuff. Those Asian people. No, I'm just joking. I don't care. You guys can make Asian jokes all day long. If you know me, I don't care. I make them, so you can make them too. But my point is just because they're good at something doesn't mean they love it. In fact, sometimes because people so take for granted that they're good at it, they end up hating it because they're not known, right? Do they currently feel stuck or do they feel like they're growing in their career? And I like this one. What's one major concern, area of concern they have right now? Not just about work, about family. Are they concerned about their son's addiction? Are they concerned about the wife's health right now? Are they concerned about their future? Are they, one, are they getting midlife crisis thinking, man, what am I doing with my life? See, to me, if you know the answer to most of these, maybe all of them, I would say you would really know your employee. And if you don't, I invite you to go to your direct reports and say, hey, I got some questions to ask you. That, to me, is truly knowing your direct reports. So that's question number two. Then I want to talk about question number three, shoulder to shoulder. Some of you guys might have heard this term before, shoulder to shoulder. Shoulder to shoulder is basically the idea. Where are my notes in this? My notes is all over the place. Normally I'm more organized than this. Shoulder to shoulder is the idea that you are aware of what they do for their job. I know that sounds kind of silly. Um, but really is not because we might have an idea of what they do but talking with business leaders and their employees often there's a complete um, miscommunication the boss thinks they know what the employee is doing and the employee is like they don't know what I'm doing okay and why is this important I just want to share one easy principle why this is important you know when you're a kid and you're, I don't know, you guys play sports as a kid? Who played sports as a kid? Because I did not. Okay. Or maybe you're a painter, you're an artist, whatever. You, you play the clarinet, you have in the band. What do you want? You're, you want your parents to come watch you play. What sports do you play, Marcus? Football. Okay. Do your parents come watch you play? Not football. Not football? Did you want them to? Yeah. Oh, they come and watch basketball? Yeah. 
What did it feel like when your parents come and watch you play basketball? Approval? Yeah. They see you. They see you in your best and sometimes in your worst. Yeah. They get to see it all. Now, maybe you're not a sports person, but maybe is, um, you know, music, like I said, music, art, theater, I don't know, I don't know whatever, chess match, I don't know, whatever, <laughs> whatever you guys did. But there is something in every person's heart to want their parents or someone they love to come and watch them perform, right? We all get that, right? Well, guess what? That doesn't change when you get older. It literally doesn't change. We still want that. We still want people to see us at our highest and our lowest. Why? Because we want to be known. And when we give that to our employees, it does two things. When we give them praise, they know it's genuine. If I say, hey, you know, Marcus, you're such a great athlete. Marcus would be like, appreciate it, but you have never seen me play sports ever. So I appreciate it, but it's kind of empty. I have people come up to me, it's like, hey, you're just doing such a good job at the church. Now again, I appreciate it, and I, I, I receive it, but I can't help but thinking, I don't think you know anything I actually do. <laughs> and that's not your fault or anything like that, but that's genuinely how you feel your heart. You guys, can you guys resonate with that? So if you're leading someone and you say, hey, you know what? I just, man, this, you work so hard on this project. I really appreciate what you do. But you have never been in the grind. You didn't see them stay up all night working. You're not linking shoulder to shoulder with them. I'm not saying you have to be there all the time. But there should be moments when you see what they do and link arms with them and feel the pain they feel. When you go and compliment them, man, it makes a world difference. On the other hand, when you give them feedback, it's also so much more effective. Well, you know what? You just need to play harder. Marcus, you, just, you guys lost the game. You should have played harder. You didn't come see me play. You're just throwing word salads out there. There's no meaning behind this. Well, if you only prepare more, did you see I stay up three nights working on this project? And that's what I see happens all the time. We want to have the effect of our words without the price behind it. When I first started leading Aaron, Pastor Aaron Brown, first thing I did is I went to youth. I haven't been to youth in a decade. I went to youth. I didn't, you know, I snuck up there to the back of the balcony, our youth room, and I watched him preach. And when he left his meeting with his youth leaders, I snuck in there. I wasn't trying to make a scene and whatever. I sat back and I listened. When I commissioned uh, Sean to lead uh, our young adults small group, I literally sat in the back. I didn't want to sit in the middle of the circle. I wanted to be out of the way. But he knew I was in the back listening to him teach because I want to give him feedback. I want to give him encouragement. It has to be meaningful. When I first started leading Lauren Brown, when she was, uh, she was taking care of the starting point, guess what? I came to the starting point. I sat in the back. I don't want to listen to her presentation. I wasn't there every week. And I don't have the capacity to do it every single time, but there are moments you have to be there to hear what they're doing, what they're seeing, so you can encourage them meaningfully and give feedback in a way that they can receive it because they know you truly care, you love them. That's what shoulder to shoulder is so important. And then I want to talk about, okay, so question number three. Who should I practice shoulder to shoulder with? Put someone, put the name down. I'm gonna give you 30 seconds. We're running out of time.
Lastly, one-on-ones. There's many different models for one-on-ones. I just want to say the model that Beanbow used, which I've taken, I've kind of modified a little bit, basically is one, one hour meeting once per week. Okay. Now, there are other rhythms that people use. I would say my meetings are almost never an hour. Almost always at least an hour and a half. Um, but I think it's wise to keep it within an hour for many different purposes. There are sometimes... You, you meet once every other week, or some people do once a month. I will say once a week is probably the best rhythm because you need some type of consistency to build that relationship. And people say, push back on this one-on-one. -on -one. They say, you know what? We meet all the time. We chat all the time. We're on the phone all the time. We're, right? we're, we're driving to work all the time. Do we still need to have this one-on-one? -on -one? And I will push back and say, there is something special when... Somebody makes your calendar. When someone looks at my phone, they see their name on it. It is special. Your time really is your most valuable asset. It really is. Okay? And when you start practicing putting someone in your calendar, you are articulating something to them. You're saying you are valuable to me and that my, one of my most precious assets belongs to you. You are in my recurrent calendar. I'm telling you, it's different than just haphazardly and say, hey, guess what? Hey, how's this thing going? Blah, blah, We still need to do that. But that one-on-one -on -one time is different. Here's something else about one-on-one. -on -one. You got to make sure, as the leader, I would say you don't talk more than 40% of all the words being used. You should use less than 40% of them. You need to be listening most of the time. Okay? In fact, probably the less, the better. Um... This is, has to be a safe place for them to share their agenda. Okay, so when I have a one-on-one -on -one with somebody, again, I'm in an interesting working environment because some of the one-on-ones one -on I do are people I don't interact with at all. So our meetings are more than just a one-on-one. -on -one. It's kind of like a work meet and a one-on-one. -on -one. That's why it goes over an hour. But in the one-on-one -on -one section, it's whatever they want to talk about. I'm listening to them. What's on your heart? What's, what is important to you? What, what's been going on with you? This is not my agenda. This is your agenda. I'm going to tell you why, for me, why one-on-one has been, I'll, I'll call it even magical for us at the church. It's healed relationship. It's brought communication at a level I cannot even understand. It's, from the outside, you're just like, well, what's the big deal? Well, if internally, if you're doing it, you see the magic of it. Right, Sherry? Barbara, I mean, it, it, it creates the relational infrastructure for things to work in a way. Like, it's, it's literally, I feel like it's magical. I'm, I'm going to explain in the best way I know how, why that is the case. From a performance, from the efficiency, I'm not even going super spiritual, just from a performance perspective. Because much of a lack of productivity is not due to a performance or a talent issue, it's due to a heart or emotional issues. Does that make sense? Most of the inefficiencies, which leads to lack of profitability or productivity, is due to emotional issues from what I've seen. Okay, Most of you guys know how to hire the right person. Okay, the right talent, the right qualification. If they don't have all those things, they probably get eliminated really quickly. The issue we have is most of the time not performance or talent-based, but emotionally based. Miscommunication, offenses, unforgiveness, emotional issues. What the one-on-ones does is they leave room for these emotional issues to breathe. You open up to the light so the light can be shining on it so it won't fester in the darkness. 
was talking to Sherry about this. Uh, she was looking to grow our hospitality team, which is great, our events team, which is great. I just said to her, like, I don't mind you growing. But when we grow, you need to make sure there's enough emotional, relational infrastructure to sustain that growth. What do I mean by that? You think about it, if you just grow another arm or, you know, in the development of a baby, you start growing an arm or a leg. But there's no infrastructure to that body part. In other words, there's no bone, there's no skeleton bone, same thing. There's no tendon, there's no blood vessel, arteries. What's going to happen to that leg that's grown out? It's going to die. Necrosis. It's going to die because there's no nutrients. There's no feeding from the body to that leg, right? But not only will this leg die, it's going to take the whole body with it in death. Does that make sense? That's what happens when you grow too quickly, outwardly, superficially, without the infrastructure to sustain that growth. And what is the infrastructure? I mean, from the business standpoint, yeah, you got accounts, you receivable, you got, you know, IT support. I'm talking about the emotional infrastructure, the relational infrastructure of the one-on-ones. So for us at Living Stone, if we want to stay with this relational level of leadership, we will grow probably a little more slowly in terms of our leadership. Why? Because we want to have infrastructure of relational style. We will grow a little more slowly, but when we grow, we will not backtrack because there's strong relational infrastructure in place. Are we perfect in doing this? No. But we are slowly taking a step in that. Does that make sense? I have this quote by Tim Keller right here who I didn't put on the sheet of paper. I should. It's so good. He said, to be loved, think, listen carefully, to be loved but not known, love but not known is comforting but superficial. We talk about that, right? Hey, man, great job. But you don't really know me. But to be known and not loved is our greatest fear. And that's why a lot of times people don't want to be known or don't want to know others. Because you're tapping on big fears, greatest fear there. But to be fully known and truly loved, known and loved, is, well, a lot like being loved by God. This is what we need more than anything, to be known and to be loved. It liberates us from pretense, humble us out of our self-righteousness, and fortify us for any difficult life can throw at us. You got challenges at business, challenges at work, challenges at church, challenges at home, challenges with your kids, challenges with your wife. How do you overcome these challenges? Practice knowing and loving. You know, just working as a pastor, working with parents and then working with kids who have now grown and become parents themselves. Just looking at all these different angles. One of the best things you can do for your kids is to know them, is to know them. Because they want to be known. They want to be loved. Practice relational leadership with your kids. I have to practice relational leadership with my wife. One day my wife came to me and said, like, you do one-on-one with everybody in the church. Where's our one-on-one? <laughs> oh, babe, I do one-on-one all the time. Every night before we go to bed, I'm on your, my phone. You're on your phone. We're, 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 we're sitting next to each other. No, that's not one-on-one. That's the importance of relational leadership. So there's many different reasons to practice relational leadership, productivity, health, fun environment, increasing profits. But the most important reason for relational leadership is that we are called to treasure what God treasures, which is the people around us. You guys all know the parables of the talents, right? You guys know five talent, two talent, one talent, 
the landlord left and gave different talents to different people. And the guy with five talents made five more. Good and faithful servant, he said. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enjoy, enter the joy of your master. The guy with one talent buried it, did nothing with it. The master said, you wicked and lazy servant. He says, take the talent for the guy with ten, I mean the one, and give it to the guy with ten. For to everyone who has more will be given and he will have an abundance. But the one who has not, what he, what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, and that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Man, this landlord is not very nice. He wants accountability for the talents you've been given. This is one of those verses that shivers down your back. Because this lazy and wicked servant wasn't, cheating, wasn't being lazy or wicked because he cheated on his wife, or because he was you know, cheating even the master. One thing, he took the talent, he, he used it for his own purpose. He stole from it. He didn't even steal from the master. He simply did not grow it. This should be scary for us, followers of Christ. Now, just for, for one second, understand that the talents he's talking about is not just your own talents. The talent you're, you're responsible for is not just my Andrew Ming's talents. I need to maximize my talent. Sure, I'm responsible for that. But not only that, I am responsible to maximize all my direct reports talents. Whoa. Come before Jesus one day. Hey, what were you doing, man? I don't know what his voice will be like. Well, I work hard trying to maximize my talent. Well, what about Aaron Brown's talents? Did you maximize his talents? But wasn't he under your leadership? Did you make sure he fulfilled his potential? I mean, of course, Aaron's got to answer for himself too. But the greatest gift given to us is the people that God has entrusted us with. To enrich and empower them, to love them, help them fulfill their call. So, anyways, question number five. We got to go. Who will keep you accountable of relational leadership? That's probably the most important question. To which I want to give you one minute to write that down. Who will keep you accountable of relational leadership?